Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well, what I wanted to talk about today was something that's been on my mind actually for a few weeks actually. I've been thinking about this and I guess you know when there's a sign, don't you? You just know there's a sign that you should talk about it. Well, uh, Nana, uh, PSC, who, who was a guest on the podcast, you might remember, um, some time ago, on uh, he was, I think, part of the second steppers in the Going Full-Time in Property uh, series, um, one of the guests in that panel discussion that we had there. Um, he often, you know, sends across me uh, property research and news um, and, and starts a conversation, if you like, that way. So thanks, Nana, for doing that, because obviously you, you're kind of uh, piquing my interest and we start a conversation, I start thinking about things. And uh, you sent me uh, an article that we talked about um, valuations, if you like, um, properties being downvalued actually by 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 lenders, and um, I've been thinking about this anyway. Um, and so, you know, when two things come together, it's just obviously a sign that we should talk about it. So, what I really wanted to talk about today is who controls house prices. And I'm just going to go through that. I mean, um, I did actually do a social media post today. So some of it I'm going to literally crib from that. I'm going to embellish it a little bit for your uh, for your delight. But um, I'm going to base it around that, really. And then just add a few extra bits of it. And, it. and I guess the other thing is to think, well, well, kind of so what? I always ask these questions. If you see some research, so what? Um, there's a couple of questions. One is, so what? And the other one is, what's the vested interest? What's the personal motive? of the people who uh, have commissioned the research or have released a press statement or something like that. So don't lose sight of that. People have got an agenda. People have got a personal motive. And so when we're asking, so what? That's one of the things we need to actually understand. So what? What's their agenda? What are they trying to achieve? So I guess if we talk about house prices, um, it's, it's easy to think that actually who sets the house price well, it's it's an exchange, isn't it? It's um, it's a transaction between a buyer and a seller, uh, a vendor and uh, a buyer of a property. And of course, you've got you know two main categories, I guess. You've got homeowner buyers, you've got investor buyers. Predominantly, we're talking about the residential market here, um, predominantly. But I, I won't necessarily only reference the residential market. Um, it's just that I want to kind of keep it relatively constrained. So you've got the willing buyer and a willing seller, and that should set what's called fair market price, as it would do if you go to a market store um, or the or you know the suk or something like that. You should end up with fair market price. Actually, if you go to the suk, you probably end up not with fair market price, unless you've got a bit of uh, experience, if you like, and, and a little bit of uh, patience and uh, and gravitas, etc., behind you to be able to negotiate in that environment. So that's maybe a bit of a clue here. And in the housing market, it's not as simple as that either, because it isn't only the uh, willing buyer and willing seller who are going to set the price. Um, it's part of the story, but it's not the full story, so to speak. So what are the other influences, if you like, that we can have on house prices? 
Well, let's start with uh, what Nana, you know, inspired me to, you know, talk to you about today. Um, and that's the, the lenders. Now, the article I'm reading, it was, um, it was actually in Property Industry Eye. I'll probably put a link to it in the show notes. And it just, it, the headline is almost half of properties are being downvalued by lenders. And that sort of stuck out with me. It's actually downvalued by lenders. And this is some research commissioned by Bankrate UK. And, and bear in mind, they were looking, this the research dates back to March. So it does cover the entire pandemic um, period, really. Uh, we, we really started, we went into kind of a lockdown in March, didn't we? And so it, it covers that entire period. So maybe it's not altogether surprising because probably market sentiment, people would have been a bit spooked at that point in time. What's going to happen to the economy? What's going to happen to people's jobs and, and incomes? What's going to happen to house prices? And I guess the, the lenders as well, um, they, they kind of thought, well, hmm, we, um, we might get, you know, we might catch a cold here, so to speak. So talking of personal motive, what is the lenders? What's in their interest? What is their personal motive when it comes to house price valuation? Well, really, it's about risk management for them. And so they want to take on their, on their uh, balance sheet assets, which um, uh, their value is going to stack up. And they, they're all about managing risk and mitigating risk and avoiding risk. That's, that's really what a bank is, is employed to do. Uh, the margins technically are quite small, quite slim from a, a percentage on money point of view. And so they actually have to protect that margin as far as possible. So that's where they come from. And so they're kind of risk averse. And that means that maybe if there's a, a, a hint that the market might you know, turn against them, then they're probably going to be uh, looking at uh, valuations and other types of levers, which I'll, I'll come on to, um, in, a, in, a, in a sort of more stringent way. But when it comes to valuation itself, the, um, if there's a mortgage-backed uh, purchase, house purchase, whether it's uh, with a homeowner or whether it's with uh, an investor, the, um, the person who's actually engaging the valuer is the bank. So it's not us, even though we're buying the property, it's the bank. So that uh, value, and I'll, I'll kind of come on to some of the dynamics here, that value is actually working for the bank, accountable to the bank, and has to provide their professional indemnity insurance to the bank. So that's what's the personal motive of the, the valuer, you know, in the context of it being a, uh, a mortgage-backed um, in, investment property. Well, not, no, not just an investment property, a mortgage-backed purchase. So in the financial crisis, which is, seems like an awful long time ago now, uh, 2008, 2009, about 12 years ago, uh, when that started, um, it caught a number of valuers off guard. And what happened was that the, there were a number, um, anecdotally speaking at least, of uh, overvaluations that happened. And, you know, there was a, this massive spike in house prices in the early 2000s, early to mid-2000s, and around about 2007 at the peak, um, possibly a lot of people thought it was going to continue. Valuers are human beings too. <laughs> and so I think there was a situation where people uh, were, were still buying properties into 2008 and the valuations were still you know, pretty high at uh, 2007 level or even slightly above. And of course, the market turned, there was a global financial crisis, credit crunch, whatever you want to call it. And the market declined pretty significantly 
approximately a 15% fall in that one year, 2008 and stretching into 2009. And so um, some of the some of the valuations that came in were effectively high, overvalued in the context of how the market shifted. And that's the, that was the key thing. The market had shifted. But what it meant was the the lenders looked to some of their valuers because they, they started to incur losses. Um, the market turned against them. They'd overpaid or they've overlent against properties. Um, the loan to values were being squeezed. People couldn't afford to pay. Um, banks were calling in the debt. And, you know, they were trying to sell the assets, trying to sell the property. And unfortunately, they had to take a, take a loss. And so they would look then to, well, who can we pin this on? And the valuers were caught in their crosshairs, if you like, and a number of them were sued. A number of valuers went out of business, effectively, withdrew from the market. And uh, that was really what happened. So if you think about the personal motivation of of a valuer, they're a little bit afraid of, especially when it comes to bank lending, because, you know, the, the banks might come after them, quite frankly if they overvalue a property. So they'd like you to be much more cautious, especially if they know that there's uh, some sort of finance or mortgage that's backing the purchase. So they're cautious to begin with, and uh, they're looking out for signs uh, that can go along with that. But let's just stick with the, the lenders for a minute. So the lenders, um, perhaps at the moment, they might direct the valuer to be a little bit more cautionary, let's say, in the comparisons that they're selecting. Uh, for valuation purposes. And um, bearing in mind what I say, the valuer is is appointed and works for the lender, even if we or a buyer ends up paying for that valuation. We don't have a say, basically. So uh, that's why so many valuations don't, uh, even if we don't agree with them uh, they they're, and they're challenged, they, they rarely are overturned. So the lenders um, looking more widely at the housing market um, they, they'll have a view, essentially, of what's coming up. They'll have their own e- economic experts uh, looking at the market. And then they'll, they'll um, you know, when we run into pandemic, <laughs> uh, pandemic pa- um, panic mode and the lockdown, the, the lenders would have been um, probably panicking literally about what's going to happen. And so the levers they've got to pull include things like loan to values, uh, their interest rates, their lending criteria, and their fees. And since that period of time, they, a number of them actually ceased lending or reduced their loan to values at the beginning of the lockdown period back in March, April, May time. Um, and since they've come back to market, um, they started to relax some of these criteria. So that, actually, that would have a bearing on the market because it would affect the availability of finance, the terms of financing, the cost of financing, which will then feed through into the purchase decisions of, of uh house purchases, whether they're homeowners or investors, in terms of their affordability level and, and, and therefore would govern to some extent the price that would be paid. You know, if you just look at a simple example, um, a reduced loan to value means anybody would need to put in a higher deposit, which makes it less affordable for them to, to get into the, into the transaction in the first place, which might discourage them from overpaying for the property. So that's just an illustration. So the first category I'm talking about is lenders. And if I go back to the piece of research that, that the Nana shared with me, he was saying that, uh, or the, sorry, not he, but the research was saying, 46% of UK, UK homes have been downvalued since March, um, according to Bankrate. And, and just to dive into that a little bit further without spending too much time on it, it, the picture was varied across the country. 
So we don't we have a national view, uh, and that's that forty six percent of homes are downvalued, if you like. And um, the but then if we look at regions, the it, the variation was quite pronounced actually, and uh, you know peaking in Wales at sixty three percent down. Uh, of properties being downvalued and uh, being buoyed up, if you like, in the southwest, we're only 26% of properties being downvalued there. And so a whole range between the 26 and the 63% of properties. So bearing in mind, this is where a lender has commissioned a valuer to go out and value a property for a house purchase, which is being going to be backed by a mortgage. So um, the, 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 there's a few dynamics there. As I mentioned, there's a balance of power. The lenders have got a grip on the valuer. The valuer is going to be cautionary. We went into some uns, uncertain times on the back of some previous uncertain times, which is Brexit. And you can see why such a large number of properties were downvalued over that period of time, probably. And I dare say, if you looked at breaking down that sort of six to eight month period, um, it's probably not eight, is it? But six and six or seven month period um, for the first three months, followed by the, the second three to six, three or four months, you'll probably find there was a deeper uh, level of down valuation in the earlier part than in the latter part, I suggest. So anyway, that's that. So they've got the lenders as, as one influence on, on house prices, not just willing buyer, willing seller. I guess let's stick with the valuers then as, we, as we've referred to them. So the second category, of course, is valuers. And um, I would say that a valuer's opinion is critical. Um, they're often the ones who, who really drive house prices. And if they get a bit spooked uh, about what's going to happen in the market, you'll start to see that be, you know, reflected in values. Um, and it, it perhaps doesn't make sense. You'll probably see comparables. And m many of us have probably seen valuations over the last couple of months, which have probably referenced two major you know, uh, significant events, one being Brexit and one being the coronavirus, as being reasons to be cautious about value values. And so valuers would be looking at comparable evidence, which is the predominant way of valuing a residential property, recent sales within close proximity in a like-for-like -like condition, essentially, would be what they're looking at. But valuers might then, you know, adjust down their value of that property based on the uncertainty that they're perhaps foreseeing uh, with things like Brexit and uh, the coronavirus. But here's an interesting thing, um, and I'll just uh, maybe signpost you to this as well. RICS, which is, of course, the uh, Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors, they, they actually conduct a, a market survey amongst valuers and surveyors. And they do that every month. And you can look at the RICS website, <coughs> excuse me, and you can pull that, uh, that data out. And it's quite, it's quite interesting. Now, it looks at a national picture, but it also looks at a regional picture, a bit like what I was talking about with the bank rate data or the research there. And it's, it's, it's judging sentiment on a number of different levels. It's looking at housing stock, which is the supply, um, supply of houses. And that would give an indicator of what sort of transaction level there is, what sort of supply of houses are coming to the market, but also buyer demand and buyer affordability. So it's looking at the, the supply and demand side of things, but it looks at other indicators too, like the macroeconomic climate, for example. It will also look at the lending climate and, um, and, and it, will, it will just sort of take all this into consideration. And the report for September, which I was looking um, at in, in just prior to recording this, it, again, it described a different picture across the country. And interestingly, um, the, the September report, so I'm talking about different timescales here. So the bank rate research spanned from March through to, to now, essentially, 
Whereas the RICS report that I'm looking at, literally as I'm talking to you, was dated September, so it's much more recent. But here we go. Um, in Wales, <laughs> for example, is uh, there's very strong uh, expectation for price growth in Wales. Um, there's other ones as well, but uh, that was interesting, wasn't it? The, the, there was a significant number of bank uh, or lender-based valuations being downvalued in Wales over the last six months, and yet the outlook for Wales seems to be very strong probably because there's been a lot of down valuation and there's maybe some room for, for growth. And there's been obviously some changes in terms of economic policy, uh, government intervention that has taken place obviously during this time period. But if I look at the overall picture for the UK, then there's a very strong positive uh, indicator uh, for house prices um, over, the, over the foreseeable future. So I think it's a net positive of 19% for house price growth over the next three months, for example. Now, bearing in mind, um, I'm going to drift into another influence here, but bearing in mind, we've got some stimulus going on. So RICS will be taking on board some of these external indicators as well when they're passing through their market sentiment. This market sentiment report will be circulated amongst all the members. So they're canvassing the members for opinion, they're consolidating that data, and then they're recirculating the results across all members. So it's going to have a bearing. In other words, when the valuer turns up on you, at your property and uh, they've got this, the latest market sentiment, which for them will be probably dated October, not September, um, because obviously they have inside uh, information, if, you, if you're a member. And so that will be at the fingertips of the valuer when they come and visit the property. But we've got two conflicting pieces of information there, one of which is more recent, one of which is more you know, long-term, if you like, but they're kind of pointing in opposite directions to some extent. And this is where some of the confusion can arise, of course. So we've got, um, you know, we've got, the, we've got lenders, we've got valuers as two significant stakeholders, if you like, that can have a bearing on house prices. And um, trust me, if you go for a, uh, if you get a down valuation from a valuer or a lender who's appointing a valuer, then it probably will mean one of two things. Uh, it will probably mean either a renegotiation of the price and therefore bringing the price down. If the buyer doesn't want to chip in and put more money into the deal, that's, uh, that's another option, of course. But the other alternative is the sale could collapse. And of course, that will then feed through into the market with you know stock coming back onto the market, perhaps a negative sentiment about the fact that it has to has come into the market. People understand why that's the case, and that will drive prices down. So you can see how it all gets interrelated. Well, the next thing I wanted to talk about, or the next group, um, was basically central banks and the government. So the, these are the uh, people who set you know, economic policy and um, fiscal policy for, for the marketplace overall. And so, uh, in, you know, think about interest rates, think about general economic policy. Uh, and in, in, especially from a government point of view, it could be both direct and indirect interventions. So let me illustrate. So there could be help to buy assistance, which there was in the past, not so much now. Uh, although there's talk of maybe help to buy, you know, mortgage, uh, mortgage lending for first time buyers. Um, at, at sort of 95% loan to value. That's the, the, the government are talking about that as a potential incentive for the, for the market to, uh, in inverted commas, help first-time buyers acquire their own home. But we all know, really, that's just an economic stimulus which is intended to get people owning homes and drive the economy. And the other one, of course, is stamp duty. Well, um, I, interestingly, talking about valuers, the RICS are canvassing and lobbying for stamp duty to be abolished round about April time, 
uh, as we entered into the lockdown period and were really concerned about the state of the housing market. And they lobbied for, um, you know, the um, for stamp duty to be halted, if you like. And they got their wish. The government complied. And um, I've spoken about it before that I call it the stamp duty trap, a stamp duty land tax uh, incentive trap. And people have been piling into the market, basically overpaying and then forgetting themselves that actually they've got a certain amount of saving and maybe overpaying for the property by at least that, if not more, and offsetting any potential gain in the process. So you've got those direct interventions. You've also got some indirect ones, such as printing money or quantitative easing. Um, and then you've got interest rate policy as well. Uh, there's, there's talk of potential negative interest rates. Um, you know, on the horizon, the banks have been asked, can you cope with negative interest rates if it were to happen? So it's obviously being spoken about and that might happen. And so if there's negative interest rates, it means there's no point people holding money on deposit. They may as well lend it if they're a bank. They may as well spend it if they're a saver. And so that might therefore feed into house prices, of course. So we've got three interrelated points. We can see how they also are connected in some way also. Um, as, as we go through this. But then turning away from uh, some of those sort of larger institutions, we've got more individuals. So we've got cash buyers. So we talked earlier about lenders and who are backing people who needed a mortgage to buy a property. Well, of course, there's some people who buy a property who don't need a mortgage and they're cash buyers. But they, they're still influenced and affected by the returns on the cash that they can normally get. Uh, that would be influenced by things like interest rates. So what I said about negative inter interest rates, you can probably guess the implications there and what that might mean to them. But also what sort of returns they might get on other asset classes. Um, in the beginning of the, uh, the pandemic, back in March, the, there was a, a kind of a stock market crash where everyone was a little bit afraid. And so, you know, people who had, were sitting on cash weren't going into the stock market and were looking for other asset classes to invest in. Um, and the property market actually, once lockdown opened up, round about June, and obviously coupled with the stamp duty change, people were piling into property as an asset class. So that was driving prices up. We've actually seen something like a 5% year-on-year house price increase in, in, in the recent month. So um, it's definitely, you know, uh, a wash with cash or a wash with, uh, you know, a positive view of the market and people have been piling in, as I mentioned. But equally, cash buyers will be interested in what's going on in the general economy. And if they see recession coming, maybe they'll sit on their cash for a while for one of two reasons. One is to take advantage of opportunities they might spot. And one is to protect themselves in case there's a bit of a downside. So the influence of cash buyers could be significant. There's a number of people who buy properties using cash. Some of them are based in the UK. Not all of them are. So that's an, and by the way, that's another influence itself. So you could get overseas buyers, um, and they've got maybe currency, um, you know, gains or losses that play a part in in their uh, affordability as well. So um, you know, you can start to see how this all fragments. You can start to see how it's all interconnected and interdependent. But it's also a bit, you know, difficult to call. Essentially, uh, not even you know talked about regional variations. So we've we've just picked up another group, which is the cash buyers. The next one I wanted to pick up really, well, they're kind of two related. So one is the general economy. So you've got the house market, which is a part of the overall economy, but it's not the whole of the economy. So you've got the wider economy, if you like, and you know, you've got three principal um, categories there. You've got boom, recession, or stagnation. So you know, it's high growth, or it's, it's, it's in decline, or it's kind of relatively flat, 
or stable. And, and, and how the economy is doing and how, you know, in particular things like employment is doing, uh, economic growth is doing, is going to have a bearing on, um, on the housing market. You know, how, how much money people have got available, for example, returns in other places that I've been speaking about, will all play a part too. So there's another uh, part of the, the market that, that plays, uh, uh, sorry, another part of the, of the economy that plays a part into the housing market. And then sticking with another uh, category of, uh, of buyer, we've got investor buyers. So investor buyers uh, could be cash buyers also, or could be mortgage-backed buyers. So it breaks down into that kind of level. But they'll be looking primarily at you know, income returns, which is based on rents. Now, if rental growth um, is, is high, that might attract people into the marketplace uh, and that might drive prices up for a time until rents start to normalise. And thanks, Martin, for asking that question on, Martin Evans, that is, for asking that question on Instagram when I posted this on, uh, on, on, the, on, on Instagram earlier today. Uh, and I'd missed, I'd missed actually rents off that list, so you stimulated me to, to remember that. But yes, indeed, uh, rents can drive prices until they, relatively speaking, normalise. Um, you know, in, in, in terms of yields that, you know, people or investors would expect to see. So uh, the next one is really sentiment. And that's, that's just what people feel. Um, you know, what is the outlook? Uh, how positive are people? So we, we talked about valuers having, you know, a, a market survey about what their views are, which you could argue a bit more professionally backed. They're seeing data every day. But the market has got a sentiment as well. It's got a collective sentiment. And so you've got the mood of the market, individual buyers and sellers, if you like, who are looking at the uh, market and making a call. And, you know, we were chatting. We had a mastermind call earlier on today. And we we're talking about this issue about values and valuations. And one of the, one of the uh, members said, I, well, I, would, I personally wouldn't get into residential at the moment. And if I would, I'd be looking for a significant discount, something like 15%. And, he, and Rich, yes, you, you talked about, um, you know, uh, making an offer on a, on a purchase uh, with, with that kind of discount baked in. And um, you also commented that the house hasn't sold. I thought that was interesting. So you, you're pricing in your view of uh, the uh, potential drop in price. And so you're hedging, if you like, um, against that potential loss arising and, you know, protecting the downside risk. And of course, if it doesn't arise, then you've, you've bagged a bit of extra profit. And from the seller's point of view, uh, they, they perhaps had a higher expectation from a sentiment point of view, their personal sentiment point of view. They probably think everything is okay. They probably think it's a bit of a seller's market at the moment and probably why they didn't accept your offer, I guess. But you've got this sentiment going on. So you've got all these individuals with their own points of view. They're getting information and data from all over the place and putting it together. And what I'm trying to say is there isn't just a market. There isn't just one stakeholder group. There isn't just a whole UK market. Um, there isn't just one section of uh, buyer um, that we're talking about here. It breaks down, it fragments, it's spread out, it's interrelated. And some of these things are not easy to call. So, for example, the government you know, policy of stamp duty. Well, who saw that coming? But it came out. And you know, the government now are talking about 95% uh, loan-to-value uh, mortgages for first-time buyers. Clearly, the government's trying to stimulate the market with some very obvious tactics to buoy up the economy. Because once the housing, if the housing market's doing well, 
generally speaking, the economy is going to be doing well as well. People are going to be moving, people are going to be spending money on home improvements, people are going to be you know, having other, other sorts of associated costs and support other industries as a result of the housing market. So it's kind of an easy lever for the government to pull is to stimulate uh, the housing market. So you've got the individual investor and they're calling it the sentiment there. So of course, so what is, I did promise you, I'd ask this question, so what? And I've been alluding as we've been going on about personal motivations. What are the personal motivations of buyers and sellers? In particular, you know, cash buyers or investor buyers, there's things that drive their behavior. For example, investors will be looking for a rental return. Cash buyers will be looking for an overall return and maybe opportunity cost and what they could get elsewhere. The, the Bank of England is going to support the overall economic objectives for the uh, country, including, you know, uh, interest, uh, sorry, well, basically growth and inflation. And the, the government will be looking at wider, you know, economic implications and things like unemployment, job, job growth, uh, overall uh, gr- um, you know, market growth, if you like, and will, you know, adjust accordingly. So these things factor in as a personal motivation or as an agenda, you know, behind each, each stakeholder's interest. So we shouldn't lose sight of that. But then, you know, when we're thinking, so what? Well, what can we do about it? Well, a cited rich, the, the guy who uh, priced in something like a 15% reduction in, in an offer that he was trying to make. Um, so he was hedging, essentially. So he was willing to keep uh, moving forward, but on the proviso that he gets it at a price that he feels is comfortable and would protect and give him what I would call a margin of safety. I'm not sure I agree 15%, but that was his perspective. I might price in a slightly different number. You know, earlier on in the year, I definitely would have been pricing in sort of somewhere between five and fifteen percent. Well, settle on ten, um, but that was proven not to be needed. You know, earlier I think four months ago, famously, Savills were predicting a, something like a, I think it was a, if I get my figures the right way around, I think it was a seven percent drop in prices in 2020, and then you know, four months later, it was a rise in prices. So it was a, as Ian talked about. Um, on our mastermind call, it was a boomerang uh, prediction and made, probably made them look a little bit silly, to be honest. But that's the thing with predictions. It's really, really difficult. So in terms of so what, we can price in, you know, potential declines. We can price in potential increases as well, for that matter. And it also depends on our strategy. Now, personally, what I would suggest we do, uh, if we're investing for the long haul, is you know just just buy steadily over time and do what's called pound cost averaging. So if we're buying, you know, if we want to buy twenty properties over twenty years, uh, sorry, yeah, twenty properties over twenty years, you know, we can average out the highs and lows of prices by buying one a year, and not necessarily just waiting and then piling in when there's a market crash. Although some people individually decide to do exactly that, you know, they follow the principle that you make your money when you buy. They sit on cash or they have it invested in other asset classes. And when there's a price correction or a price crash in the housing market, uh, and by the way, a price crash is defined as a 15% reduction over a two-year period. So something less than that is a correction. Something like something of 15% or more over a two-year period would be classed as the house price crash, apparently. Um, so, you know, people might pile in at different points in time, but pound cost averaging is one way to head, you know, smooth out those highs and lows. And um, another, yet another strategy I prefer, this one, is just to be in control, really, of what we can control. So we can't really control house prices, let alone predict them. 
Um, <laughs> you know, with so many different things going on. So what we can we can we, what we can control is what is under our direct control. So we can hopefully control what sort of price we pay for a, a property. It might mean we get rejected on a few offers. If we're going in lower than, let's say, the, the typical uh, 4 or 5% discount from uh, the listing price, and if we're going a little bit deeper than that, as Rich you know, said he wanted to, then we might, we, might you know, we might be able to get a better deal basically going in. Um, if we adopt a strategy of adding value or forcing the appreciation, so not relying on natural capital appreciation, when I say natural, might not actually happen, become you know, maybe speculative. So forcing the appreciation is the second thing. And then investing for yield, or in particular, actually, for cash flow. Uh, again, as Ian talked about uh, during our mastermind call, it's probably the safest thing is to invest for high cash flow. Then we can service the debt. Then we, you know, we're not so worried about what happens to prices because it's, you know, it's paper gain or paper loss as we go through um, time. So we can adopt those sort of strategies. And if we're looking for more of a short-term strategy, such as flipping, Darren, I'm going to name check you. You're starting to get nervous about uh, your flipping strategy. We'll bake in the numbers. And I asked you, didn't I, on the call, I said, uh, what sort of margin were you aiming? And it was a minimum of 18% on total cost. Well, I just defined a house price crash as 15% reduction in prices over a two-year period. So if you're at 18%, proximal, I know we're not necessarily comparing apples and apples here, but let's, let's assume we are for a minute. Uh, Darren, <laughs> so uh, if you're if you've got a margin of eighteen percent, you know, in other words, you wouldn't do the deal unless you thought you're going to get an eighteen percent uh, profit margin. Well, you've got you know a house price crash of fifteen percent over two years, which is more than comfortably going to be mopped up by your eighteen percent. So you shouldn't risk your capital. Is the point? So you know, if if the market turned against you, uh, you you're probably in a flip deal for approximately nine months all in. Uh, you start to see market decline, you could sell, and maybe maybe you don't make the same profit, maybe you don't make any profit, depending on how things go. And then you cash your chips out without a loss of capital. That's, that's one thing you could do. The second thing you could do is have a plan B. So if your plan A is to sell the property and obviously bag the profit, a plan B could be to keep the property and rent it out and refinance it, and then go back into the market sometime in the future. Yes, it, it isn't your ideal opportunity uh, or your ideal plan, Hence why it's a plan B, but it, you know it might get you out of the situation, and I've been there myself. So there's a there's another there's a couple of examples of the so what. So if you're investing for the long term, you know try and you know buy well, uh, try and add value to property, try and force the yield. And if you're going for short term, for example, uh, property trading or flipping, um, have a big enough buffer or margin of safety in your profit numbers that you could you know get out without a loss of capital, or perhaps you could switch strategy and refinance and retain that property instead if you needed to. So that hopefully answers the so what question uh, as well. So I've tried to name check a few of the people who were you know, speaking, uh, I've been speaking to if you like over the last 24 hours. Now, hopefully this has been of interest to you to just talk about some of the influences on house prices and maybe to recognize that it isn't actually just the case of uh, this willing buyer and willing seller striking a deal. There's a lot of other things going on. There's a psychology of the market. There's uh, other stakeholders. You've got vested interests uh, or actors, as they're called, various actors who've got their uh, vested interests who you know, are, are bringing to bear their influence and their opinion uh, into the marketplace. And that is also having a, an impact. 
you've got regional variations, you've got ripple effects going out from you know, previous highs and lows, um, local characteristics that are, that are taking place and affecting prices as well. So in other words, um, people sometimes ask me, what are your predictions for the housing market? And I quite simply say I don't do predictions because it's really, really complicated, basically. And uh, it can make a fool out of us, really, um, if we try and do that. So I think keep calm and carry on. Can you still invest if prices are going against you? Yes, you can. Uh, are there strategies that work more effectively at certain stages in the market? Yes, there are. So I think, you know, just have your wits about you. Collect data from different places. Always recognize that... Um, People who, who've got a stake in the housing market have got a, an agenda of their own, they've got a personal motive, and that will have a bearing on their individual behavior and therefore the overall collective behavior. But don't lose sight of the fact that there's lots of competing stakeholder interests, there's lots of sub or micro markets that are taking place with different issues. So, um, you know, just keep it all in, in together and as far as possible, um, try and control your own destiny rather than sort of trying to guess the market. Um, as as Buffett, Warren Buffett says, it's not timing the market, it's time in the market. So if you've got a long-term approach to it, maybe the pound cost averaging, maybe the three Fs of forcing the discount, forcing the yield and forcing the appreciation um, are the right way forward. And if you've got a short-term strategy, have a margin of safety so that you can protect your capital position and or you've got an alternative plan B. So hopefully that's been useful. Uh, as always, the uh, the show notes are going to be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. So please go and check them out. I'll try and drop in the links that I mentioned in the course of this uh, conversation. And if you want to talk about, about anything from today's episode or indeed anything more generally uh, regarding property, you know you can always email me, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. I'll be delighted to hear from you. But I guess uh, for now, that's all I'd like to say this week. And until next time on the Property Voice uh, podcast. is Jacko. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.